Hey, we're getting wolves back in Colorado. But what does that mean? Is there really enough habitat? What do ranchers think about it? And where do you order wolves for your wolf-free introduction program? Answers to these and many more questions with my guest Gary Skiba on today's Rewilding Earth podcast. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Gary Skiba is the Wildlife Manager for San Juan Citizens Alliance at sanjuancitizens.org. Gary joined SJCA in April 2020 and was an SJCA board member for several years prior to that. Before that, Gary worked for the Colorado Division of Wildlife for 23 years. Throughout his professional career, Gary focused on threatened and endangered species management and spearheaded the agency's efforts on biodiversity conservation and ecosystem management. He's also worked for Great Old Broads for Wilderness as an environmental consultant and monitoring conservation easements for La Plata Open Space Conservancy. We start today with Gary giving us a lay of the land for the wolf reintroduction and some surprising news, at least to me, about how quickly wolves can actually be on the ground in Colorado. We're moving forward now, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission and the agency Colorado Parks and Wildlife are moving forward to develop a plan and to get get wolves on the ground. There is a deadline of the end of 2023 to get those wolves on the ground. And um, we're hopeful that they'll be able to do it even more quickly than that. But that's kind of the the context of it. You know, wolves were here um, when Europeans got to Colorado. They were uh, an integral part of the ecosystems of Colorado. And we removed them by the 1940s. The last wolf was removed from Colorado. So the experience we've had in the Northern Rockies shows that wolves can live with people and can live uh, in, can coexist with people. And um, they sometimes cause problems, but uh, they they belong here. My experience with wolf reintroduction is primarily in the Southwest um, with the Mexican wolf program. And I got to work on that. I got to go do howling surveys, which was really cool. Oh, um, yeah, but that was cool. a federal effort, and it took a long, long time, as federal efforts seem to do by law, <laughs> as a yeah. rule. Uh-huh. But this turnaround, 2023, you say, that's uh, that to me, coming from that kind of background, seems pretty speedy. And, and actually, I think um, I could argue that it's plenty of time, in fact, more time than the agency needs to do it, because... One of the reasons for that is because of the experience of those other efforts. You know, we saw what happened in the Southwest with the the Mexican gray wolf, the the wolves in Yellowstone and in central Idaho were reintroduced. So we have experience on how to do it. And it's not hard. There's there's no rocket science involved here. You get some wolves and you let them go. And (laughs) that's pretty much it. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to go back to uh, Parsons and make sure, Dave Parsons, and make sure he hears that. Why did you just get some wolves and let them go, Dave? 
Would have and been yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah. And things were handled differently in Yellowstone and central Idaho. In Yellowstone, they did have acclimatization pens that they kept them in for 10 weeks, I think it was, before they let them out into the Yellowstone ecosystem. And those wolves stayed pretty close. In central Idaho, they literally took them out of the cages and let them go. And those wolves did move more further distances than the ones in Yellowstone, but they also established populations pretty quickly. So you can do it. And, you know, and even if you go the, with the pens, um, that's not that big of a deal as far as the, any uh, major extra cost on things. Uh, the major cost is getting your wolves and the people to handle those wolves. So it's not difficult. It's really, really easy. The biggest part of it, as far as what CPW, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, has to do is um, the public process. To, you know, they are committed to having some sort of public process through the initiative that is in the ballot language. And so they have to do it. And it's a, just a question of um, how they're going to do it. And that's that's something that's coming up um, next week. There's a meeting of the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission and um, a significant chunk of that meeting is going to be dedicated to how they're going to move forward with wolf reintroduction. But are we having a different conversation at all about wolves now or is it the same basic lines drawn in the sand that that, that have always been? It's pretty much the same. I would say that the the um, the one thing that the opponents of restoration are focused on now is the time and how quickly it will be done. They're you know they're expressing a concern that if we really push things quickly that we won't adequately address everybody's concerns. I think that's a a fair way to characterize their argument. And um, you know, as I said, there's no question you can do it. I mean, we did a, a wolf management plan in Colorado, and it wasn't a reintroduction plan. It was just to address what we would do if wolves started to move into Colorado on their own. And I was the staff lead on that plan back in 2004. And um, it took us eight months. And I mean, it was a contentious process. We had, I think we had six meetings in the end of the group of people we brought together, the stakeholders group. And no, no question, it was difficult, but there's no reason that it would take more time than that to do an adequate reintroduction plan simply because we do have that experience elsewhere. We know what the arguments are. And that one, the argument that it's being done too fast to me just doesn't hold water. You can do a very adequate job in, you know, between now and the end of this calendar year and have a great plan in place. What are some goals for the program? What are goals for for us conservation-wise and uh, the stated goals that must have been outlined in this proposal uh, in terms of populations and range? Yeah, well, there is no numerical goal. So I want to make that very clear that there wasn't in the initiative. And I would presume that CPW is going to have some sort of a minimum numerical goal um, Frankly, I, as a biologist, don't see a need for a, an upper end limit on the number of wolves to be established beforehand. To me, you establish that by what the wolves do. So the point is there is no numerical uh, goal right now. The goal from the standpoint of the initiative was to establish a self-sustaining population of wolves. And that's a some terminology that is sometimes difficult to really put a number two in the end. How many wolves is that? And, you know, we have some ideas. There's some basic conservation biology concepts that apply to that. But, yeah, it's really a question of are the wolves out there and you know, establish themselves and being able to maintain a population. Now, one of the things that we've focused on, um, the Citizens Alliance and the Rocky Mountain Wolf Partnership, is um, the idea of ecologic, 
ecological effectiveness, which means that the wolves are out there um, influencing ecosystems in the way that they did before we removed wolves. So that means that there are wolf, wolf packs all over the place, where, wherever they decide they need to be or they can be in order to um, function properly out there, and that they are um, basically managing their prey items the way that they do, their prey animals. So, you know, wolves um, establish territories and they um, these territories don't overlap. They will have boundaries at the territories. They will use the resources within it in a way that actually is very effective at keeping those animals, the prey animals like elk in particular, that's the big one, um, keeping them moving and keeping those populations healthy. We know that they remove sick animals and injured animals because it's easier for them. You know, one of the things people don't really um, always recognize is that when you weigh 80 to 100 pounds and you're attacking an elk that weighs 1,200 pounds, you're at a major disadvantage. I mean, you know, people don't think of of those prey animals like elk and deer as dangerous, but they are, and um, they have sharp hooves, and they they can kill wolves. Every one of those animals has killed a wolf sometime historically that we know of. So it's dangerous to do. So they do take the sick, the weak, um, the injured animals. And um, so that actually improves the health of the herds, of the animal herds. So there's really, you know, one of the major concerns has always been that um, the, the wolves are going to somehow decimate the population of elk or deer or moose. And it doesn't happen. I mean, if you look at Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, those three states have more elk today than they did in 1995 when wolves were introduced. And so, uh, you know, one could argue if one wanted to play a little game of correlation that um, wolves cause increases in elk populations. That's not what happened. The elk populations increased for lots of reasons, and some of them active management by the state wildlife agency. So there were a number of reasons why they increased. But the point is you can manage with wolves and actually increase the, the prey populations. Moose are a different story, and it's one that's always pointed out. Moose in Yellowstone have declined substantially from what they were when, when wolves were reintroduced. But that's because of a, a lot of factors like changes in forests, changes in hunting regimes outside the Yellowstone National Park. So wolves may have contributed to that. I wouldn't say they didn't. They probably did contribute somewhat to the decline of moose, but they were not the primary cause by a long shot. And people point to that as, well, look, the moose are gone. And well, they are, but it's for a lot of other reasons. And the one message that I always try to get to people about the way these systems work is it's complicated. There isn't any one thing that causes everything to happen. It isn't just because wolves were reintroduced that um, moose declined, and it isn't because wolves were reintroduced that elk increased in Montana. And um, so it's the systems are complicated. They're affected by weather, other animals that are out there, other predators, other competitors. So it's a, a complex system, but you can live with wolves and you can still have every bit of hunting opportunity that you've ever had. Yeah, one thing humans really dislike is complex systems. They want to simplify everything, right? And you're right. Yeah. In, in nature, complexity is a feature, not a bug. And <laughs> there it, you go. It's how everything works. And uh, yeah, I have a friend I have in mind while you're talking who lives um, in the mountains. He, he'd live in an area where it, it would be conceivable in the future that he'd run into one of these new wolves. And but he's not a rancher. He he just lives uh, out there, uh, independent uh, business person. And he's a friend, so he's cautious about these types of things when he talks with me about them. 
And uh -huh. I have people like that in mind, not ranchers, um, just people who live uh, quite a ways out of city centers. Um, and it would be nice to get a conservation biologist such as yourself to say on record, what is their life going to be like to live with wolves? Well, I guess from the way I look at it, their lives are going to be substantially enhanced by having wolves. Um, I, yeah, to me, there's just a, a, and I think almost any biologist feels the same way about this is there's just this sort of magical thing about wolves. And I'm not saying they're magical animals or that they have any sort of, uh, you know, specific spiritual meaning anyway. It's just, they're really cool animals. And, um, you know, we, we, one of the reasons we like them is because, they're a lot like us. They're a family-oriented animal. They're very social. We have dogs because of wolves, you know, because wolves and humans have some kind of um, bond that, that just is there. They just um, naturally um, seem to come together. And that's yeah. the thing that I see as somebody who's lucky enough to live in a place where there are wolves. I mean, just having a wolf howl in the night. I mean, I love hearing coyotes howl, and uh, but wolves. Wolves are even more special than coyotes. So I see it as an enhancement. There, you know, there are going to be situations where you want to be, you know, cognizant of wolves being there. I mean, you don't want to walk into the middle of a wolf rendezvous site with your, you know, with your Labrador retriever in the spring when the puppies are around, the wolf puppies, because mm. yeah, they they would be viewed as competition, and some dogs have been killed. But you look at the big picture, you know, there's there is no reason to fear wolves. There just isn't. I mean, it, you know, if we had rabies running rampant, I, I would couch that a little bit differently. But even then, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. But rabies is under control in North America. We don't have to worry about that. Rabid wolves are the problem that you always hear the stories about in the old world. And um, we, we just don't see that. And we don't see very many antagonistic interactions between humans and wolves. Almost all the interactions are very, very positive from the standpoint of the people who want to see wolves and want to hear wolves. So I, I see it as a major enhancement of your life if you have wolves in your neighborhood. Comparing the landscape now, the prey species, the literally the bent of a river, <laughs> possibly, uh -huh. all of that now, and when wolves, let's say they've had a chance and it, it's been 10 years <clears throat> and we've got a healthy uh, population and everything else. I mean, what are some of the things people can expect you know, biologically with the way things look now compared to um, a successful program that's been going for several years? Sure. If you look at, um, you know, what wolves do is they do affect the way their prey behaves. There's no question about that. And that's kind of the basis of a lot of the complaints you hear from hunters in areas where there are wolves, because before wolves, the prey acted a certain way and you knew that they'd be out in the meadows, you know, and at five o'clock at night, you know, during this period of the, this time of year, they'd always be there. And now wolves cause them to move more because they have to be more alert and be um, avoiding that predation. So there are some effects that way that we're almost certain to see. You know, some of the things that you kind of alluded to with the river, for example, is that um, you know, in Yellowstone, there was a major uh, recovery of riparian areas after wolf reintroduction. Now, there are differing, differing opinions about that. As we talked about already, it's complex. And um, what happened was um, the well, the the Cliff's Note version, or maybe the uh, maybe I should call it the um, the caricature version, is that 
Wolves moved in. They caused their prey to avoid riparian areas just because they were moving around, avoiding wolves, and that allowed the willows to regrow. That allowed beavers to move back in, and then small birds and small mammals all moved back into those areas. And I don't think there were unicorns and rainbows, but some people think there were, I think. So, mm -hmm. but it, um, that they do have effects that way, but it isn't just the wolves. And, you know, the situation with beavers is complicated. Some beavers were introduced. Um, there was, an, um, as a result of the changes in prey behavior, there was more of an ability for those areas to recover. But to attribute it all to wolves is just not accurate. It was a more complex thing than that. Weather was involved. So there, there are those effects. So I'm, what I'm getting to is that I wouldn't predict that we're going to see major increases or major recovery of riparian areas in Colorado that are currently impacted because they're impacted for lots of different reasons. And it's not just about big game animals like elk and deer staying in riparian areas and eating all the vegetation out. It's more complicated than that. But wolves will cause those changes in behavior. Some hunters will find it more difficult to hunt because the animals are uh, just more wary than they would be. They're more alert and they're going to be watching for predators, including humans more. So there will be some changes. And, um, uh, you know, we can't really predict those in any real way, mainly because none of this stuff has been done as a controlled experiment. You can't do that. It's not like we had two identical areas, one we put wolves in, one we didn't. Everything else was the same. The weather, the, um, you know, the amount of snow, um, the the amount of predation from other animals, all those factors that have to be identical to do an experiment that you could really point to and say, here's what the wolves did. So we really can't do that. I mean, we know that wolves are an important part of ecosystems. They were here for tens of thousands of years. They belong here. And they they created the system in a certain sense. There's no question that pre large predators like wolves, the way they affect the ecosystem is more so than most animals affect the ecosystem by the changes they cause in their prey and the, the resulting changes from that to vegetation. But the exact way that's going to happen is unpredictable. Don't uh, mountain lions also get kind of casual when the boss isn't around? Well, there's probably some of that, but it, you know, it's difficult to really look at the, 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 I mean, the interactions between wolves and mountain lions are, are, kind of interesting because there there isn't that much in the way of direct effect just because they totally they have totally different styles of hunting you know mountain lions are more like people where they lie in wait and then take advantage of something whereas wolves are out there testing their prey so totally different systems you know there probably is some avoidance of from lions but lions have increased in yellowstone since um wolves were reintroduced now, you know, again, you could play the correlation game. Wolves cause increases in, in, in mountain lions, but they don't. The mountain lions had been wiped out. There was no longer control going on, so mountain lions were able to move back in. So there's definitely an interaction there, but as far as all the details on it, it's not 100% clear what goes on there. And I don't know that they change the behavior of the lions all that much, but they probably do affect it somewhat. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. 
how are uh, organizations and volunteers, individuals, if at all, for the volunteers, um, how are people going to be utilized? How's, how are citizens going to be utilized or organizations in this process? What's, what roles are you expecting to play? Well, there, I, and I think you're talking more about the sort of the interdiction process and beyond that. And I see kind of two processes. The first one is the process that CPW will be going through to develop a plan. And that's where the organizations that San Juan Citizens Alliance is involved with will be uh, working with to try to influence uh, CPW to do a good job of the planning and to do a, a, an effective job of creating a sustainable population of wolves. So there's that piece of it. Then I think the other piece is um, what's going to happen as far as once wolves are out on the landscape, how can people... Um, what what would individuals be able to do there? And to me, I, I think all that the only real role there is going to be sort of a reporting role that, you know, we have wolves here. We saw these wolves and this group had this many puppies. I don't think they're going to be there's going to be much involvement of volunteers in the actual reintroduction process. First of all, it's not it's not that labor intensive. Um, so it's not like you need a bunch of people. There's likely to be an opportunity for VIPs to go out and watch wolves being released, but um, there's not going to be a whole lot of opportunity to hold a wolf and release it. There'll be some of that, I'm sure, for the governor maybe, but um, it's not going to be a, a large opportunity for folks to do that kind of thing. It's going to be in the longer run as wolves establish themselves just being the citizen scientist who's out there reporting on where the wolves are and what they're doing. And if there's a kill that, uh, you know, there may be an interest in following up on some of those, just kind of that information exchange from the general public who's out there back to the agency and the people that are doing the management of the wolves. Talk about the agency side of all of this. What, what, I mean, I think if anybody knows anything about this stuff, all they would know is about the the way the feds handle this sort of thing and fish and wildlife and things like that. But I have no familiarity at all uh, with w what the makeup is of this. Is this a, a excited, capable, willing group of scientists and, and others? How do you feel about the the capability of this getting pulled off on the technical official level? Well, there's no question about the, the capability and professionalism of the agency. And I don't I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but I worked for that agency for 25 years and mainly in endangered species work. So, um, you know, my opinion of the agency is is still very, very, I hold them in very, very high regard. They do a, a good job of what they do. Now, yeah, there are political things going on and there may be some resistance from outside the agency that causes some internal resistance that may make things move in a little bit different direction or a little more slowly than we'd like. That's possible. But um, overall, the agency, when they're given a job to do, they will do it and they will do it professionally. And as I said earlier, the there's nothing magical about wolf reintroduction. It's an easy process, something that can be done quite simply, quite effectively, very rapidly if you want to do it um, that way. So those parts of it, there's no question that the, the technical capability will be there. And I think that from what I've heard, CPW is planning to contract with some folks who've done wolf reintroduction before. So people that have been involved in Yellowstone or central Idaho. So they will have people with actual experience hand, you know, working alongside them so that they have all of that knowledge as well. So no question the technical end of it, everything will work fine. It's always going to be the the political questions that are out there and how those influence it. And some of those are ones that, um, you know, are going to be brought up by the opponents or 
some people even maybe not be maybe opponent isn't the correct word just people who are concerned about the possible negative impact of wolves and those are all legitimate concerns that should be addressed and they and they will be addressed through the process so those are all going to influence how things happen but as far as really the technical end of things as far as getting wolves out on the ground and um yeah, making sure that you have enough wolves to start a population. There's, there are no issues there whatsoever. I just checked Amazon.com and they are fresh out of wolves. Um, <laughs> where do you get wolves? I say I needed to reintroduce wolves to the southwest part of Colorado or the Rockies anywhere. I mean, how do you go about picking up some wolves? Well, we don't know what CPW is going to do for sure, but we can look at what happened in Yellowstone and, and central Idaho, and those wolves came from Canada. And, of course, wolves in Canada uh, at that time were hunted and trapped, and so in a certain sense they were surplus and were going to be killed anyway, one way or another. So that's where those came from. We have a similar situation for us and the wolves that are in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming now, or at least certain parts of those those states. So there are wolves there that are being hunted and are being, I'm not sure what the trapping situation is, frankly, on those, but they are being hunted in those states and can be killed in those states. So the, the logical place to go is to a place that has a lot of wolves like central Idaho or um, in, somewhere in um, the western part of Montana where we can capture a group of wolves. Uh, which can be done aerially, you know, with a helicopter, you can find a wolf pack and you can capture the majority of a wolf pack so that you have a social unit that you then bring to Colorado and release as a social unit. So that's the way it would work. The states work together regularly on trapping and transplanting different kinds of animals. Bighorn sheep have been moved all over the West um, from one state to another. Moose have been moved around. Elk, Colorado basically wiped out its elk herd back in the early 1900s, and um, we transplanted elk from the Yellowstone area. So um, we know how to do all that kind of stuff, and it's easy enough to move those animals around. And as I say, the wolves, um, and some of those states are going to be happy to give us wolves to put into Colorado. What's the size of, of this kind of place where wolves would be comfortable, that they've got a, enough room to roam, that the teenagers have room to go out and start their own um, well, you're talking about some serious, serious land always in that situation, right? Sure. Yeah. And yeah, in western Colorado, the area where wolves will be reintroduced, there's 17 million acres of public land. So that's the public land. And, and there's um, slightly less than that of uh, private land uh, or other non-federal public lands. So we have, you know, pushing 50 million acres of lands that are out there. Some of those are private. Some people... Owning those private lands aren't going to want wolves on them, but uh, you know, it's kind of hard to stop a wolf from crossing a fence line. So there's there's plenty of land for wolves. And and you know, one of the criticisms that we've heard over and over is that there's too many people in Colorado now because there are 6 million people. There are going to be 10 million people. Most of those people are along the Front Range Corridor between Fort Collins and Pueblo. Mm. So, and yeah, a lot of them do recreate in the mountains, but as far as the population density that you see on the western slope of Colorado, it's very similar to what you see in uh, in the areas in Montana and Idaho and Wyoming where there are wolves. So it's not that substantially different. Plus, the other thing to think about is there are wolves all over Europe with much higher population densities. Mm. There are a number of countries that have higher densities of wolves uh, and higher densities of people, much higher densities of people 
than we're likely to have in Western Colorado for a very long time as far as the people, um, the, that density. And the, the wolves get along with people fine. I mean, you can, you can coexist with wolves. It's not that hard. It really isn't. I mean, and part of what is going to happen in Colorado, and it's in the ballot initiative in that language, is that there will be a compensation program for ranchers um, or owners of livestock um, so that they can get compensated in some manner um, for the loss to a wolf, which is going to happen somewhat. It doesn't happen a lot. We know for Montana data, for example, that it's one 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 hundredth of one percent of the of the cattle in Montana are killed by wolves annually. So that means that's one out of every 10,000 cattle. So uh, we're, it's not going to be a big problem. It's going to be a problem. Some ranchers are going to get hit harder than others. Um, and, you know, they, I can understand why they don't want that that issue, but it, it's coming. Um, you know, the people of Colorado want wolves. And so we will have them and um, there is plenty of room for them. And we can address any of the issues of coexistence that we have between humans and wolves pretty easily. It's been done over and over again across the world. We always talk about people who don't want wolves on their private property. They don't want them crossing the fence lines. We always talk about the pushback. But what about people who are really excited, landowners, uh, who are excited about the wolf program? who are private landowners. It's not a one-sided issue out there. It's not like if somebody owns land and has cattle on it, they automatically hate the wolf program or the idea of wolves. Well, that's true. And there are um, ranchers and landowners, ranchers, however you want to look at it, that um, will welcome wolves. I, and I think realistically, uh, it's not that many. It's not a great percentage, but they're out there. And we have ranchers in Canada yeah. and throughout the Northern Rockies who have wolves now who get along just fine with them and have come to appreciate them. And so there is that, just that attitude. Again, I think wolves, wolves tug at our heartstrings somehow. And even if you're somebody who views them as competing with you in some way, whether you're a, a hunter and you think they're competing uh, with you for an elk, or if you're a rancher and you feel like they're competing with you in the sense that they might kill some of your livestock, there's still something there. There's something about wolves that just calls to people. And you're right. There are ones that, um, are going to welcome them just because they know they belong there. They know they're a part of the world that should be there. And they're the same they're they're going to have the same reaction as, you know, your friend you mentioned earlier who um, lives in the mountains who is going to be able to hear a wolf howl. They're going to be ranchers that come to appreciate that and deeply appreciate it. I mean, how helpful can private citizens, landowners, ranchers uh, be in such a program when they proactively get involved with it, not just go along with it? Yeah, you're, you're right. They can be very helpful just by um, uh, there are ways to welcome and accommodate wolves and bring them in and, and have them be part of something that, you know, I, I'm not a big landowner, so I can't really say that I know exactly how I'd feel about it. But I would think there would be a certain level of pride uh, to be able to say, hey, I've got wolves on my property and mm. I can go out and listen to them. And, you know, and yeah, every now and then one of them has killed a calf, but it's, you know, it's, it's something that is, uh, is acceptable to me to have this, this piece of the natural world on my land. Mm. And I wanted to mention that, you know, there are a number of efforts going on um, across the West and in Colorado to try to get um, ranchers uh, together with wolf advocates just to talk about why they feel the way they do. It's really just, it's more a matter of developing a relationship 
between those communities. And it's it's like anything that we have, any of the divisions that we have, whether they're political, religious, social of any kind. It's very easy to demonize your opposition or your or anybody who's different than you, the other, whichever kind of other it is. And, you know, these efforts are just, you know, when you sit down with somebody and, you know, and have dinner with them and have a beer, um, you start to recognize that you're all human and you're basically all good people. And that's what we have. And, you know, we, we've been trying to do that and try to open those doors and try to develop those relationships so people recognize that you, know, you may think about things differently and may have some different values, but we're basically all good folks. There's a whole array of organizations out there that um, interact with people who might be viewed as their opponents or at least people who don't agree with them. And um, one of the things and one of the reasons and a little background for me is I was on the board of the San Juan Citizens Alliance for about 10 years, both while I worked for the state of Colorado and then afterwards. And I'm now working as an employee of the organization. Um, just the way things came together, it worked out for me. Um, for my life situation, and um, I was off the board because I was essentially term limited off the board, and the opportunity came up right then, and it's been great. And one of the reasons I was on the board for 10 years, and one of the reasons I really, really like working with the organization is that we do not automatically um, go into confrontation mode with people. We always try cooperation first, whether that's somebody in the water community who is um, using water resources in a way that depletes them in the stream and is affecting endangered fish or recreational opportunity, or whether it's the Forest Service and um, where they're headed with a timber sale or any other sort of action on federal lands. We always try to cooperate first. And we will litigate, but we don't regularly. That is not, that's never been our go-to. One of the reasons I want to bring this up is because I was always proud of the organization being on the board and I'm proud of it as an employee. I mean, we just do an amazing amount of work with the number of people we have. We have seven people in, uh, on our staff. And when people find out that, out that number, almost all of them are shocked. They always think we have 50 people because <laughs> of all the things we get done. And, yeah. and you know, and we just we just do good work and we do it. We do it really well and we do it in a cooperative way, which I really, really appreciate. And just the way that I, you know, I like to run my life. I don't agree with everybody by a long shot. But I'm not going to I don't want to fight with people, but I want to be sure that we can have those interactions where we can come to some sort of either common agreement or if we can't, we can't. And then we go, you know, we can take a different path. But it's always that cooperation, collaboration first. And it makes me really proud of the organization. You've been around long enough to experience network with uh, maybe work for other types of organizations that fall somewhere on the spectrum a little further away from what you're describing, where they are more confrontational, less likely to sit down and talk. What what do you feel like your organization enjoys as a benefit from having that mindset that other organizations might be missing? You know, I, I think they may be missing that, just the sort of the the sense of accomplishment of that and just the the feeling of of coming to some sort of a collaborative agreement. I think there's a real, there, there's something in the heart about that, that you just, when you do that, you feel really good about it. But at the same time, I appreciate organizations that are more confrontational than the Citizens Alliance, because I think they need to be there. I, I, it's like almost any political issue, no matter what it is, you kind of need to have the extremists out there kind of poking at things and saying, yeah, this that is makes what we you, want. This it makes you a lot more palatable, right? Uh, 
Foreman said a long time ago that people realized right away, look, Sierra, you're going to have to deal with us as the Sierra Club, or you're going to have to deal with these guys over at Earth first. You pick. It's your choice. I mean, doesn't it make it easier for you guys to have a sit down sometimes when the bad, the big bad wolf is out there somewhere and that's their other choice? Well, yeah, and th- and that's, uh, I mean, besides sort of that strategic or tactical approach to it, which I think is important, it's, it's also just the, the reality of everything that we do, you know, that somebody has to stake out the corners, you know, and say, mm-hmm. it could, this, we could be over here, you know, we, we could be the, you know, having no people allowed to recreate in Western Colorado, you know, or something like that, just so that we maintain intact ecosystems. So that's an extreme view. And, um, you know, having the, that at least sort of stakes that outer boundary where people can say, okay, we can see that. And here's where we are. Here are the options in between. And yeah, it is. There is sort of a functional part of it that makes it easier for organizations like ours to be more um, collaborative. But uh, uh, but uh, that's not the only advantage. It's not just that that simple kind of you know. It makes it easier for us to do our work advantage. It's that it does put the landscape out there so everybody understands what all the possibilities are. And I think that's a vital um, function of, of extremists on both sides, you know, whether you're an anarchist or a communist, you know, and then there's everything in between and um, just staking out the corners is a, is a valuable function. Well, tell us about SanJuanCitizens.org and how people can get involved. Well, they can get involved in a number of ways. I mean, we we do uh, we're constantly putting out action alerts of various kinds on all sorts of activities, from you know forest service to county level stuff to uh, what's going on with wolf reintroduction, for example. So people are they always have the opportunity, and, and you know we provide them the tools so that they can get their voices heard on those sorts of issues. And we want them to become a member. I mean, we're you know, we're not an expensive organization to be a member of. It's a $35 basic membership, and we'd love to have more members. It helps us to be able to get our opinions um, out there with agencies and organizations to be able to say we have, you know, a certain number of members. So we want to have that, and every one of our staff members is always willing to work with someone with whatever issues they have to help them understand what the situation is, whether it's the complexities of methane capture in northwest New Mexico, or the um, you know the development of the wolf management plant, any of those things were just we're there as a resource as much as anything. But we want those people to become our members. We want them to um, recognize what great work we're doing down here in southwestern Colorado and northwest New Mexico, in helping to protect people's air, land, and water. That's what we do, and we're doing a. a I think just an amazing job for the size of our organization, but we always can use more resources. The This position that I'm in, the wildlife position, was just created this last year. So I'm, I've been working since April of 2020 in the position, and um, first time we've had a wildlife position. We were able to gather enough resources to actually fund a position, so that's why it's been possible. And you know, we the, the more we can do that, get more people working on these things, we can just be that much more effective. SanJuanCitizens.org. Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth Podcast today. Thank you, Jack. Really appreciate the time and appreciate uh, being able to get a message out to folks. I, I thank you for everything that you're doing. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. 
To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.